Well, good morning, church. Hope you're, uh, hope you're enjoying the balmy weather, the heat wave. It's already 18 on the way up to maybe 27 degrees today, getting warm. Uh, glad you're with us to worship and to learn together today. Those of you online joining us from our Olmsted Falls campus and all over, so glad that you're with us this morning. We're continuing our, our series on devoted. How can we connect more deeply with God, grow more, grow more together spiritually? And I invite you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 24. That's a passage we'll be looking into this morning. And uh, I want to start out with a uh, true story about a pastor named Mark Galley who pastored out in the Sacramento area and then he was an editor at Christianity Today. But his church out there had sponsored a bunch of Laotians who were immigrants and were settling into that area and their church um, helped them in a whole bunch of different ways. And so a lot of these Laotians, um, all Buddhists who had grown up in Buddhist families in, in Laos, started attending the church. And after they'd been attending for a couple of months, they came to him and said, hey, we, we would like to become members of your church. And he said, okay, but he was a little surprised because they were kind of brand new to Christianity. So he said, well, let, let's meet together and have a Bible study. And uh, they started going through the, the book of Mark. And so they got to the passage that talks about how Jesus was asleep in the boat and the storm came up and they were afraid they were going to die and they woke Jesus up. Remember, Jesus got up and he said, peace, be still. And the storm immediately quieted down. And when he read that, he read the passage and he turned to them. He said, what are some of the storms in your life? And they got this quizzical look on their face, you know, and they were talking to each other. And he said, well, let me, let me, let me try again. He says, um, you know, Jesus calmed the storm. What, what are some storms in your life that, that you would like Jesus to calm? And again, you know, looking at each other, and finally one of them hesitantly said, you mean Jesus actually stopped the storm with just a word? And Mark Galley says, uh, I didn't want to get hung up on the whole idea of miracles, you know, so I said yes, but the important thing is he can, he can calm the storms in your life. So what storms would you like Jesus to, to calm? Again, awkward silence, and then finally one of the Laotians said, if Jesus calmed this storm, then he must be a very powerful man. And this is what Mark Galley said. He said, everybody in that room, except for me, the pastor, was full of awe and wonder at the person of Jesus. Everybody except for me, the pastor. Isn't it possible, because most of us have been around the Bible for a long time, we can miss what's right in front of us. We can miss the awe and wonder of God himself. And so what we want to talk about today is what are some of the wrong ways to engage the Bible and then what is the right way, that the way that God prescribes in his word to engage with scripture. Evidently, this, this issue of kind of missing the awesomeness of Jesus in his word is not a new problem at all. In fact, look at this verse from John chapter 5. This was Jesus speaking to his contemporaries who were keen Bible students. They were eager Bible students. He says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. 
Yet these are the very scriptures that testify about me, but you refuse to come to me in order that you might have life. Uh, Studying the Bible and learning the Bible is not just about mastering the content or learning the content of the Bible as an end in itself. It's intended to do something deeper and richer and better than that. So let's think for a couple minutes about how our Bible, Bible reading can go wrong. And this is from a recent article by uh, Pastor Dane Ortland, And he gives a little bit longer list of, of wrong ways to study the Bible. And I'm just going to give you four. But one of them is kind of the grumpy, guilt-ridden approach where sometimes we'll force ourselves to, ourselves to read the Bible out of just a sense of duty so that we can get God off our back and not feel guilty for missing our Bible reading that day. Now, none of us struggle with that, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to move on ahead. Then you've got the Pharisee approach, okay? That is reading the Bible and looking for the stuff that I already know that reinforces my prejudices so that I can feed a sense of spiritual superiority and and continue to look down my noses at other people. We could also call that dead orthodoxy. Then there's a third one, the Indiana Jones approach. This is we read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, because we like learning about ancient history and ancient cultures and ancient civilization. The problem is all of that is completely disconnected from daily life. And then you got the most dangerous approach of all, the magic eight ball approach, where you're looking for subjective guidance. You need guidance in who to marry or whether to take that new job or whether to buy a new car. And it's also known as the lucky dip method. And many of you have heard this before, but you open the Bible and you put your finger down and that verse is maybe God's word to you. So the guy read, you know, Judas went out and hanged himself. Oh, that ain't, that ain't going to help. Flipped it over, rent down, go thou and do likewise. No, 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 that, that's a dangerous approach. Don't read the Bible that way. Um, there, there are other wrong ways to read the Bible where we just kind of get off, get off kilter. But there is a right approach, and I think we see this right approach in Luke chapter 24. It's one of the uh, post-resurrection accounts of Jesus, and Luke very carefully selects three stories from after Jesus rose from the dead. And we're going to dip into the middle one in verse 13. And this is the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. This is the first Easter Sunday. Jesus had risen from the dead that morning. And so these two disciples are leaving Jerusalem where they had maybe witnessed the crucifixion. So we'll pick it up in verse 13 of Luke 24. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And he asked them, what are you discussing as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast, and one of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem and don't know the things that have happened there in these days. Now you see the irony in that? You you, you realize who they're talking to, right? Um, What things, Jesus said, playing along, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. 
And the chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But get this, but we had hoped, we were hoping that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is now the third day since this all took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us. There's a rumor going around that the tomb is empty and Jesus may be alive. We could call this first section here confusion or blindness. Many of us, when we first start to read the Bible, this is where we are. It's kind of confusing. We don't quite get it. We don't really see what it's all about. And so these disciples were sad. They were despondent. They were, they were almost despairing because they were blind to the idea of a dying, rising, reigning, very much alive Messiah, which, as we'll see, the Old Testament did talk about. They should have known that. So you see the irony in this picture? Here they are grieving, mourning the death of the Messiah, who's walking along with them, having a conversation with them about the dead Messiah, okay? Didn't quite, they were missing something that was right in front of them. Even after we've been Christians for a while and we become more familiar with the Bible, it's easy to get in and read the Bible and kind of miss what's right in front of us. There's an old story about a pastor who um, he loved the theologian Karl Barth. Karl Barth wrote, wrote this massive, long, multi-volume theology. And this pastor kind of idolized Karl Barth. He loved his writings. He had learned so much. So he decided he would take a vacation to Basel, Switzerland, where Karl Barth lived. He was still alive. And he was hoping he would maybe run into somebody that knew him. And so over the course of the week, he was there in the coffee shops and restaurants, and he would get into conversations and ask people, hey, have you ever met Karl Barth? And some of them had. One day on the street, he happened to run into Karl Barth himself, but he didn't know it was Karl Barth. And he says, hey, you, do you live here? He said, yeah. Karl Barth said, yeah. He said, do, do you know Karl Barth? And Karl Barth got a smile on his face. He said, I shave his face every morning. And the pastor walked away in a daze saying, I met Karl Barth's barber. I met <laughs> Karl Barth's barber. And he missed what was right in front of him, right? When we get into the written word of God, there's somebody right in front of us. But we have to kind of cultivate the habit of seeking for him and looking for him. And, and reaching out to him through his word. Let's pick it up then in verse 25, where Jesus kind of finally kind of lets the cat out of the bag here, and he responds to these two disciples. Look at verse 25. Then Jesus said to them, How foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. They believed many things that the prophet had spoken, but they didn't believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning who? Concerning himself. That was the best Bible study in the entire 21 century of the, of the Christian church, amen? Here was Jesus himself teaching everything that the Old Testament said 
concerning him. And he says, I am actually the main, this is the Old Testament. He said, I am the central focus, the main character, the main actor. I am the central theme that the entire Old Testament talks about. And we can think of many passages that Jesus probably stopped at. You, you can go way back to the beginning, Genesis 3.15, where it's the first prophecy of the coming the Messiah, of the coming Messiah. And it talks about how the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman will be at enmity, but eventually the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, will win a decisive victory, although he will be wounded in the process. The serpent will crush his heel. And then he probably went on to Genesis 12, where God chose Abraham from an idol-worshiping family, and he said, I'm going to make your descendants into a great nation. And through your seed, eventually, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And he was referring to the ultimate seed of Abraham, Jesus himself. And through him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed with salvation. And then he may have gone on to Genesis 22, where Abraham finally, God miraculously provides this heir, this son Isaac. And then God strangely tells Abraham, I want you to go up into the mountain and I want you to sacrifice your son. And Abraham was going to do it because he believed God can raise the dead. But God stopped him and God provided a, a ram, a, a substitute to be sacrificed. And then he could have gone on and maybe dipped into some of the Psalms. Maybe he uh, stopped in Exodus 12 about the Passover where this terrible judgment of death on the firstborn was going to come. But if you sacrifice a lamb and put some of the blood over the doorpost, the, the angel of death will pass over and you will be spared. See how that points to Jesus? Uh, the Levitical sacrifices Point, pointing to Jesus who died in our place and almost certainly he would have stopped in Isaiah 53 about the Messiah, the suffering servant who was going to die in the place of his people and the wrath of God and the punishment of God was going to fall upon him in our place and then somehow he would be alive again and he would distribute the plunder, the booty with, with his people that he had redeemed. At any rate, Jesus talked about how the Old Testament, the, the central focus is on him in symbolic ways, yes, and kind of indirect ways, but Jesus is the theme of the entire Bible and the entire Old Testament. And if that's true, then shouldn't that affect how we study the Bible, how we read the Bible? When we, when we look into the, the written word of God, we should be looking for the living word of God and look to meet with him. I like the way E. Stanley Jones talks about the power of the word of God. He was a famous Methodist missionary in India for many years. And he says that the word of God is, is the record of God's revelation given all through history. And that revelation focuses on the person of Jesus himself. And this is what he says. Jesus moves out of the pages of this book and meets us with the impact of his person on our persons. And that impact is life-changing. That impact is cleansing. He says, when you expose your all to his everything, when you open your mind and heart in submission to his everything, then you experience a daily cleansing of the mind, 
the motives and the emotions through the word of God. And he says, the words of the New Testament have been in such close contact with the living word, Jesus, that they are vibrant with life. And so we look into the written word, but we do that because we want to encounter and engage with the living word, Jesus himself. And then let's go on to the last part. We'll look at verses 30 through 32. So we've seen the confusion. We've seen Jesus correcting that confusion. But this last part is talking about an even greater and fuller clarity with which you and I have today. So eventually they reached the home. They invited Jesus into the home and they had a meal together. Verse 30. And when he was at the table with them, He took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. And then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he disappeared from their sight. Now, we don't know exactly what that means there, that he opened their eyes. But we do know, because we have the New Testament, we do know that you and I today, as New Covenant Christians, have spiritual blessings far beyond what the Old Testament Jews had. And that is primarily because of the outpoured ministry of the Holy Spirit. After Jesus ascended back to the Father, he poured the Holy Spirit out on the day of Pentecost. And every one of us was filled with the Spirit when we came to know Jesus in a personal way. The Spirit invaded our lives, and one of the key ministries of the Spirit is to illuminate our minds, to open our eyes, to see Jesus more clearly and more fully in his word. We see that in in a promise like John 16, verses 13 and 14. At the Last Supper, Jesus made this promise about the coming ministry, the future work of the Holy Spirit. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will glorify me, Jesus said because he will take from what is mine and he will disclose it. He will reveal it to you. The Holy Spirit loves Jesus with an infinite love, with an eternal love throughout all eternity past. The Holy Spirit loved Jesus, delighted in Jesus, glorified Jesus, honored Jesus. And so what does the Holy Spirit do in our lives when he comes in? He creates in us a love for Jesus, a delight in Jesus, a reverence for Jesus, a passion for Jesus. That is one of the chief ministries of the Holy Spirit. He loves to put the spotlight on Jesus and away from himself. He loves to help us see Jesus and know Jesus and stand in awe of Jesus and delight in Jesus. And so how can we benefit today? How can we grow in our devotion to Jesus? How can we grow spiritually? Well, we need the right partnership. And the right partnership involves you and I. It involves the Holy Spirit. It involves Jesus. And it, it, it involves the Word of God. Through God's Word, the Holy Spirit performs a vital ministry. And we could call that ministry his matchmaking ministry. The Holy Spirit is a matchmaker. Did you know that? He takes Jesus on the one hand and you and I on the other. And through the word of God, he helps us fall in love with Jesus by seeing how good he is, by seeing how tender he is to sinners, by seeing how powerful he is, by seeing how good he is. The Holy Spirit 
makes Jesus incredibly attractive to us and ignites within us a love and a passion for Jesus. This is why the Word of God is living, it's active, it's penetrating, it's life. Why? Because the Holy Spirit takes the Word. The, whole, the Word of God is called the sword of the Spirit because the Spirit penetrates deep into our lives and impacts us in powerful ways through the Word of God. Tim Keller's longtime pastor in Manhattan, and I love his testimony. You and I, many of, many of us would share this testimony. We could say the same thing. But he said, um, uh, even though I was raised in a Christian church, it was only in college that I found a real vital, life-changing faith in Jesus. One of the main vehicles that God used in this spiritual awakening was the Bible, and especially the gospel accounts in the New Testament. He said, I had studied the Bible a little bit before. When I went through confirmation classes in my church, I had to memorize some scripture. But it was during my college years that the Bible came alive in a way that was hard to describe. The best way I can put it is that before this awakening, I would read the Bible, I would pour over the Bible, questioning the Bible and analyzing the Bible. But after this awakening, it was as if the Bible or maybe someone through the Bible began pouring over me, questioning and analyzing me. What happened? He began to encounter someone through the written word of God, and that someone began to speak to him and, and open his eyes to his sin and open his eyes to spiritual truth and spiritual reality in a way that changed his life from within. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit using the Word of God. Somebody has described the Holy Spirit as the, the shy member of the Trinity. Why? Because he wants to point people to Jesus. He wants to shine the spotlight on Jesus. Somebody said you could picture the work of the Holy Spirit like this. You have a movable whiteboard, and in the middle of the whiteboard on big capital letters is Jesus, right in the middle. And the Holy Spirit steps behind the whiteboard and reaches around and points his finger at Jesus. It's all about Jesus, wanting other people to love Jesus the way the Holy Spirit does. And he uses the word of God to, to show Jesus to us, to reveal Jesus to us. And so do you want to grow? Do you want to keep growing spiritually? Well, the way we grow is to engage with Scripture, but we have to engage with Scripture the right way, the, the, the way the Bible tells us to. So we grow when we engage with Scripture in these two ways. First of all, in a Jesus-focused way. We, we open the Word of God, the written Word, and get into it because we want to engage with the living Word, Jesus. We want to see Him more clearly. We want our hearts to, to deepen in their love and appreciation and gratitude to him. And the Holy Spirit does that through the written word. Uh, in the summer of 1983, I'd, I'd finished my first semester in seminary, and I had met, who was now my wife, Kristen, I met her there, and we started to date uh, a little bit in that last semester before the summer, and we started to get the tingles you know what I mean. We, we started to experience the tingles toward one another. 
And then she went home to California. I came home here to Cleveland, and I actually did a summer internship at Grace Church on Fry and Bagley, the old building that summer. But I wrote regularly to Kristen, and she wrote me back, and we exchanged these letters throughout the summer, and I tried to turn on the charm as much as I could through these letters. And I guess it worked because uh, when we got back, we started to date again, then we got engaged, we got married. And, uh, but there was nothing special about the paper and the ink. But you know what? Kristen has held on to those letters all these years. Not because there was anything special about the paper and ink, but because in writing those letters, we were growing in our relationship. They revealed who we were. They revealed something of our personality. And that kind of kept the tingles going and deepening and strengthening. And that's what the Word of God is attended, intended. There's nothing magical about reading it or the paper, but it reveals Jesus. It reveals his love, his passionate love for us, his undying love for us, his power, his grace his goodness. And so we engage the written word in order to more deeply come to know and love the living word, Jesus. The old Puritan writer John Owen, this is what he says about the Bible. He says, the Bible is the story of Jesus pulling needy sinners into his own divine heart. Isn't that great? The Bible is the story of Jesus pulling needy sinners into his own divine heart and enfolding us in his love for us. So we read the Bible pursuing Jesus, looking for Jesus, seeking to engage with Jesus. But secondly, we read the Bible in a spirit-dependent way. The spirit who loves Jesus, the spirit who knows Jesus better than anybody and loves Jesus with an infinite love, we depend on him. We pray that he will fill our hearts with that same love, that same clarity of vision, that same love and reverence and delight and appreciation for who Jesus is. We read, praying the words of Psalm 119, 18, Lord, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things in your word. This is how we grow spiritually. We seek Jesus through his word. And we depend on the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. A couple of years ago, I went to a conference in Colorado Springs. And the conference was at a big hotel. And the first day of the conference, the lunch was up on like the fourth or fifth floor. So I took the elevator up. And I'll never forget walking into the room. And one entire wall of that room was clear glass. And beyond it, on the other side, was the majestic beauty of the Rocky Mountains and Pike Peak, bathed in brilliant sunshine, and you were taken aback. It was awesome. It was amazing. Such a beautiful, majestic sight. And that's what we do when we read the Word of God. The glass windows is the Word of God. We don't just look into the Word. We look through the Word. And the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, sheds the light upon the beauty and the majesty and the goodness and the awesomeness of Jesus so that we can be dazzled by him, so that we can be enchanted by him, so that we could grow. 
in our love and reverence and appreciation for him. Amen? So let's seek Jesus, the living word, the lover of our souls. Let's seek the living word through the, the written word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that you're not a, a God who hides. You're a God who has revealed himself. Lord, thank you for the written word of God. What a, what a treasure. And it's all about you, Lord Jesus, your amazing goodness, your amazing beauty. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who loves you passionately and is now at work in our souls, creating within us, igniting within us, deepening within us a love for you, a growing love and reverence and delight in all that you are for us. So Lord, help us to pursue you, help us to seek you in your word, and by your spirit, Lord, help us to fall more deeply in love with you. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.